I'm Sisset Kayfaber. I'm Dan. And I'm Jim. And this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Sis, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? I would like to do uh, a little bit of both. I am Sisset Kayfaber, and my name is not to do with wrestling, unfortunately, but uh, it's from the fact that I am trans and I have not transitioned. So in my day-to-day, not at home, thankfully, but in my day-to-day, I pretend to be a uh, cisgender heterosexual male in order to make money. And then I would like to plug a nice podcast and media operation that my friends in Osaka do called Upturned Table. It's a podcast, mainly, these days. Uh, but in the before times, we used to get together and we did actual play videos of tabletop games. A lot of like miniatures games and then also um, a lot of indie tabletop role-playing games. So we did a really nice series on the pen and paper Alien RPG that got released a couple years ago. They're nice people, and sometimes I guest on that. And so it's called Upturned Table. That sounds fun. Uh, and Dan, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, uh, so I am Dan. Uh, I am a Canadian. About the only real internet-facing thing I have to plug is that I am a science fiction and fantasy book reviewer, and you can find my reviews online at strangecurrencies.org. All right. Uh, are you ready to start on some topics? Absolutely. Yes. I'm hungry for the topics. Uh, Dan, your topic is learning something by doing so you don't understand the theory behind it. Right. So... Uh, this came from uh, the fact that I'm a drummer, and I started uh, quite young. I was 12 years old uh, in a marching band uh, with the Royal Canadian Legion Pipes and Drums, so a bagpipe band. And my instructor there, uh, Sheila, was a farmer. She had no formal musical training. She learned when she was younger from some old, probably war vet guy. And everything that we learned was entirely just... I'm going to play this, you play it back until we've learned it and memorized it. And so for several years, I was a drummer in a band and had absolutely no musical theory underpinning it at all. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was a very fascinating process to be able to do something that a lot of people can't do in a way that they assume involves a lot of sort of knowledge and understanding ahead of time that largely was just done through the process of memorizing and playing it back. Yeah, I mean, so I would say that like drummers probably have the least need of like formal music theory of anybody in a band. But the thing that I would think that would really help is really internalizing like polyrhythms, like playing three on one hand and five on the other, for example. But it's totally possible to just kind of memorize that particular pattern and kind of like the particular ratatat of that ratio and mm-hmm. just me- memorize that. Yeah, and it it just it comes up sort of in later places where I ended up uh, leaving that band and going into cadets. And there, there's formal testing where they're going to give you percussion sheet music and ask for things by their specific oh, sure. name, and just sort of be like, "Oh, I, if you can play me one, I can do it." But if you just <laughs> ask the name, I have no idea what that is. Yeah, I guess when I say drummers, I mean rock drummers. <laughs> like yeah, I've I've done some <laughs> kit drumming since then, and also took enough music in school to actually have a bit of the theory, but. Yeah, it's definitely, of all the instruments, if you've got a good enough sense of rhythm, the one you're probably best able to just pick up by repetition. But it's just a a strange feeling to know that you can do something, but that you couldn't actually explain it to anybody, like how you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that that was one of the things about... So I watched the all seven and a half hours of the Peter Jackson Get Back documentary, 
And there's a lot of things about the Beatles. And one of the jokes that goes around is that somebody asked Paul at some point, you know, is Ringo Starr the best drummer on earth? And he's like, oh, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. (laughs) And then you watch this documentary and they're just going back and forth about sort of not really like complex theory, but it's very clear that they all know music, including Ringo. Yeah. And they're talking about different, you know, notes and octaves and stuff. And so just seeing how much skill was in that band at that time is very startling considering a lot of like I played clarinet in middle school and I got some sort of training in music and then um you hear these stories about like oh man all these rock guitarists they don't really know any theory now they just learn from tablature so you know seeing Ringo Starr in that documentary where he doesn't do a whole lot but it's very clear that he's very skilled I can imagine yeah that picking up drums is something that's possible to pick up and then not understand a lot of the theory behind it for sure it's it's funny that you mention how Ringo sort of gets a lot of crap, despite actually being a very good drummer. Famously, also Meg White uh, from the White Stripes uh, uh, yeah, gets yeah. gets a lot of grief primarily because of Seven Nation Army, which is extremely simple. <laughs> and there's this idea that somehow what she does is super easy and anybody could do it without understanding first that she's actually a very good drummer, and also that that band was deliberately trying to be minimalist, and so that was sort of the intention. But there's definitely a lot of grief that gets given to certain genres of music for the idea that it's somehow simple or doesn't require understanding the theory. And, you know, sometimes you can, but a lot of those people actually really know what they're doing. Yeah, any band that is like primarily just like mostly a drummer and a guitar, I feel like is hard mode for (laughs) just any kind of composition. And you see this with like the White Stripes sometimes and you see this with like Matt and Kim I was at a show at Lollapalooza and like Matt is like climbing all the structure of the stage while singing. And then, you know, she's carrying the song or whatever. And it's just, it's one of those things that in the minimalism, you see all of the difficulty of it, but that's not what most people see. What most people see is like, oh man, they're just like doing two instruments. Anybody could do that. Yeah. It it is much more difficult to create a interesting listening experience with minimalism of any sort, really. Like it's it's so easy to lean on decoration or layering or just making your song more complicated to make it more interesting. It takes a lot of uh, discipline and and skill to be able to do do it the other way, where you're it really is a simple composition, and that might be like why one of the reasons that um, the aphorism that like limitations breed creativity, art yeah, is born yeah. from constraint, is what I was trying to think of. I think that's a kind of an artificial way to enforce that. Yeah, and there's a lot of really interesting minimalism out there that definitely is full of all kinds of stuff if you really look into it. Like, uh, I mean, that's Philip Glass, sort of famously, that's most of what he does. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the song In Sea by Terry Riley. Yeah, I've heard that. I'm not. Yeah, that's that's a really great example of how much you can do with minimalism where there's basically just... I think it's somewhere around 30 little like one to three bar rhythms that are written in C and it starts with a piano that's just hitting single like ding, 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 quarter notes. And then all of the various instruments just sort of start with that one, move on as they feel like. And they're all just these simple little, you know, one of them is just da-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun and they just move through them all. 
and it's extremely simplistic, but the sort of soundscape that it creates is super interesting. And it's one of those things that just, I'll start listening to it and I'll just sort of realize that it's been going for 25 minutes and I was barely even conscious of it as it was going. It just sort of immediately settles into the, your subconscious and just sort of lives there. That's that's the kind of composition that it feels like it's almost proc gen where you could listen to this song every time. It would be different every time, but they had to record a single version of it to put on the record. Yeah, and it makes you wonder how much of it for that final recording was like planned out if they actually said, well, I know you're supposed to sort of move to the next one as the the feeling strikes you, but for the sake of making our recording, do it this way in this order or something like that. That would be interesting right. to know about. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of the that Get Back documentary is them trying to find the sort of the path that a song is going to take. And there's a lot of them sort of noodling around within takes of just trying to figure out like, okay, where does this solo go? What do we do here? How do we go here? And like order of verses and stuff. And so there will be parts where they're playing a song and then they just say like before they, re- before they record it, like, oh, I'm just going to call out what we're going to do here or you'll, you'll be able to tell. And then it's like from a musicianship standpoint of just being like, oh, yeah, you got to know all the chords and how everything works, but then we're going to play it in a weird order and you got to know that. Yeah. So my question for, for Dan here on this topic is that like for me, I can really only learn things by doing them if somebody explains something to me I really have a, a lot of trouble understanding it and this is down to like basic tasks like when I worked as a bus boy and a dishwasher at a pizza place like I really needed to use the dishwasher and do the process to be able to understand what I was being told um, but you, you get to a certain point with some things where you you know them but my question for you is that on a on a long enough timeline you are able to understand both and it never bites you. Um, it's not, it, it never like cuts against you. But like, did you find that with drumming that you hit that point where not knowing the theory really damaged your ability to, to do things you wanted to do? Well, I mean, in the very practical sense where I had gone to cadets and we were testing for our band level and I failed miserably because the person giving the test was entirely unwilling to do anything other than just ask me to do this thing to read this thing so i mean i had some sort of immediate consequences there but you know it's one of those things where just as long as you're in the context where you do know what you're doing it's fine so Mm -hmm. you know learning by memorization is all well and good until you find yourself in a situation where your memorization doesn't work and then you don't really have a way to fix it like a thing that will happen a lot with pipe and drum bands is at big events like a Highland Games or something, they'll have what they call mast bands where you'll have, you know, 10 or 15 bands all playing simultaneously. And so if the way you were taught that you've memorized is in any way different from what everyone else is doing, it's going to be extremely obvious and feel extremely bad. And so you need to to have at least some sense of, of what's going on so that if it gets changed on you... But, I mean, in general, most people watching me drum would never know that at the time I couldn't have read percussion music to save my life. I was playing the thing the way I was supposed to, so it seemed fine, even if I actually wasn't. Yeah, and that's interesting, the part about you going to cadets, and I find this in, like, higher-level academia a lot, 
because I'm somebody who came into academia and then just kind of started doing it because I don't have a PhD, but I do know programming. And so there's a certain way in which knowledge about theory gets used as a proxy for your ability to do things in a way that's not really helpful. And so in certain cases, I would have these conversations with some people where they would come away with it thinking like, oh man, this person does not know anything about what they're talking about and about this and that. But in actuality, I was contributing heavily to all of these like academic research projects. And so I find that part really frustrating in my life now. But now that I am on and I know a lot more of the theory, I don't find that happens as often. But it's definitely when there's that gap between your ability to talk about the thing that you do and your ability to do something, and one gets used as a proxy for the other, it can feel very bad at that time. Yeah, when everybody learns the thing the same way, they don't know how to calibrate when they meet somebody who learned it a different way. Yeah. yeah. It, and it gets used often in a very gatekeepy way and in a sort of artificial superiority way. And I'm sure that this has run into that programming-wise where at the point where you couldn't really explain why or how you were doing it, you would probably get treated sometimes like that meant you therefore didn't know what you were doing. And like I had that... Uh, also with a different marching band that was a much more formalized one that was a full like concert band marching band so you had the whole range of instruments and everything was sheet music and everything was just you need to know how to do this and I came in there at like 15 or 16 and everyone in that band for the most part were like over 40 and they'd been playing forever and I just looked like an idiot like I came in and it's like well I know I'm a good drummer but they're like here's a piece of sheet music we're gonna play it now and I'm just like and then I just look like an idiot and they think I'm a bad musician. And it feels like that's probably the thing that gets you the most with this disconnect. Yeah, you can't do that particular form of musicianship. Yeah, that kind of happened at my new job, where I left my lab that I had been at for about four years, and I got a new job. And then in the interview, I was good. And then like the first and second day, my boss sort of hit a wall with me where I just I didn't know about the kind of research that they were doing. And my boss just assumed that it's like, oh, we hire this person and he's a dud and this is not going to work out. And then like later on when I actually started to do the programming and I started to do the research work and interpret the data later on, he was like, oh, wow, I didn't know you were the kind of person that could do this kind of thing. And it's like, well, you really should have known that I could do that kind of thing because I explained that to you during my 45 minute interview presentation. (laughs) It's only that. I couldn't talk about the thing that you wanted to talk about in the way that you wanted to talk about it that led you to your conclusion. So yeah, that that kind of thing is is difficult. And I think if you're any kind of person who learns something by doing, it's going to be a problem at some point. But it's not been a problem for me with programming because I've been blessed to always be in programming environments where I'm kind of the only one who can program. And so... Uh, that usually gets respect. It's the sort of the connection to the programming and the rest of the work that is sometimes called into question. Are we ready for another topic? Yes. I'm very curious about how this one's going to work out. (laughs) Uh, Sis, your your topic is the lonely realization that most people don't really care that much about the things that make you unique. Not depressing, I promise. This one is born out of just my life experience and probably a little bit the fact that I have autism. And so what I mean here is that if you think about people, each person has 
many different things that make them unique, that sorts them into, let's say, 5 to 15% of the human population. And so for me, one of those unique things as an American is that I moved to Japan. I learned a Japanese, and I've lived here for 10 years. And because I liked video games in the 90s, that to me was like something that was like huge and special. And then I, I go back to the U.S. and I see my family, and they were like interested in it a little bit, but like not really. And then there's other things that they would be interested in, but in a way that I don't want them to be interested in. Like, so for example, I'm not out to most of my family. They don't know that I'm trans, but I don't want to tell them that because then they're going to have like a lot of interest in that. But there's a, a way in which sort of as adults talking to other adults, it's just kind of assumed like, oh yes, everybody does a, a job and some people do different jobs and like, yeah, your job is you went to Japan and you do academic research work. That's fine, whatever. But it feels like the amount of interest in the things that make each person unique, even when they're things that are extremely rare. And I, th I think this probably happens in the games industry too, because I have some connection with people in the games industry. If you're somebody who really likes games and gets into the game industry, you're like, yes, yes, yes. But then you, you go talk to relatives back home and they're like, oh, yes. Somebody must make those games. I guess that's fine. Mm -hmm. I definitely, having spent several years owning a board game and card game store, run into that same kind of thing. Because for me, that was just like the most remarkable dream come true that was so incredible that I constantly count my blessings that I got to experience living my dream of actually owning a game store. And you tell people like, oh yeah, I used to own a game store. They're like, oh, that's neat. And you're just like, but, but this is a like... <laughs> super important core thing to my entire personality and it's not a dumb thing like being obsessed with a particular piece of media i did a, a cool thing why why isn't this cool to you i think your cool stuff is cool yeah and that's the part where i think where maybe my autism comes in because i was doing an interview for somebody in like a university speech class where we had to like give a five minute presentation on somebody and i was sort of trying to get out of somebody like what's interesting about you and he's like, ah, there's not really anything interesting about me. And then, like, at the end of our, like, 20-minute conversation, he says, like, oh, yeah, I also, I go and I read to the people in the nursing home. And then also, I'm a pretty high-level Frisbee golf intramural player. <laughs> and I just, I freak out at that point. And I'm like, that, 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 that's your thing. That's amazing. Like, I always feel that way when I talk to people that, like, anybody who sort of, does anything that's interesting, but every different person has a different interesting thing. It's not it's not that rare. And so in, in a way, we're all unique, but we all have our own interesting things. And I'm really excited to hear about that. But then it, it feels like in modern culture, not everybody else, in, in fact, most people, it seems like, don't really have bandwidth to process how exciting that should be. I think a lot of it is that they either are trying to be modest or just don't have the skill of telling stories. Like a lot of people don't really know what's interesting, I think, about their own lives or don't know how to put it into words. Like they could have the most interesting thing happen to them and they wouldn't know or think to tell that story when they're interacting with a friend, for example. Yeah, and I think part of that could just be since you only know your own experience, it can be hard to gauge whether a thing you did is actually remarkable because you don't have a lot to compare it against. Yeah. Though I do think a lot of it is not wanting to sound boastful because we seem to have a thing in Western culture where anytime you talk positively about yourself, 
it's often seen as boastful. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I had a similar thing. Uh, one of my classmates, uh, I'm in, in college right now uh, doing some uh, legal stuff. We were just talking and he thought my life was super interesting because I'd done this weird variety of stuff. And he kept insisting that his life was not interesting. And as we got to talking, it turned out like his father was a high ranking official in a country's government and they had to like flee the country because of political persecution. And I was like, your life is fascinating. Like they make movies about people like you. How could you think (laughs) your life was not interesting and then think that my life is interesting? Like I spent a couple years running a place that made wine and I owned a board game store and I write book reviews. I bet that guy knows a bunch of people who have fleed from a collapsing government. Yeah, which is way more interesting than Minecraft. And <laughs> for for him to then think that his life was boring. So just, there's something in our brains that makes us think that our exciting things are just not going to be exciting to anybody else. And I don't know if that's a thing that was done to us through sort of the structure of the education system, making everyone sit quietly and do all the same things or what. But I I wish more people would talk about the things that make them unique because I actually do care that much about them. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what the show's about. So you're in the right place. (laughs) All right. That lull means it's time for a new topic. Mm? Uh, Do you know how to pronounce cans or is it can? Is it like French? I think think it's con. Yeah, it's French. Okay. So my topic is Shrek got a 10 minute standing ovation at Cannes in 2001. And when I first learned this, I, first of all, I had to Google it to verify, and I found several sources talking about the Shrek standing ovation. And I was trying to like come up with theories for why people would care a lot about this movie. And I think it might be that they were really happy that Disney finally had a viable competitor, which is something I can appreciate. And then I found another article talking about the tradition of ridiculous standing ovations at con and like how a list of movies that got like, Oh, these, these 20 movies got 15 minute standing ovations and how the Quentin Tarantino movie getting a seven minute standing ovation isn't even that good. Uh, so which really devalues the con standing ovation. So, so the idea is just that they give standing ovations to everything. I guess. Yeah. There's a pressure, right? If you're in the audience and you see something really good, it's become maybe a sort of de rigueur part of con that if you like a movie, well, the only way to signal that is by standing up for 15 minutes and clapping. Right, right. Unlike the rest of the world where the the tradition that everybody has absorbed is that you just clap for a few seconds. In this particular festival, you have to clap for minutes on end until your hands are burning. Yeah, that's a very long ovation. I have a sense, having, you know, obviously never been to a con or even particularly sought out the things that did well there, it doesn't really strike me as the kind of crowd that would watch Shrek and think that it should get a 10-minute standing ovation. Like, the way you were describing it earlier made it sound more like they were giving standing ovations, like, as a bit. Like... Oh, yeah, this movie's great. What a great movie. A sarcastic standing ovation is an amazing idea. <laughs> like just the idea that, like, how is this what you've brought us here at this famous international film festival? How dare you? I think the, the thing about Khan, though, is that they're seeing a lot of movies, and maybe a lot of them are bad. 
you know like yeah. I, like shrek like shrek is a good movie and it deserves a lot of credit cuz the story it tells is very heartwarming there's a lot of stuff there about how you're born doesn't determine where you're going to go it's okay if you know you're overweight and you don't think of yourself as attractive somebody in the world is going to like you and so there's a way in which like yeah shrek is great it's got a delightful pop song in there I was going to say, maybe there were just a lot of Smash Mouth fans in the audience. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know what to do. They just were like, I hear the Smash Mouth. I have to standing ovate. Right. Yeah, like maybe a lot of those movies are bad and they're like on, you know, hour eight of sitting in a movie theater watching a film. And then there's like a Shrek, which is just like, it's good. And so that causes them to go crazy. Yeah. I also wonder with the ovations, if there's something like, if you're familiar with that sort of auditory illusion where you have the notes that rise up the octave while at the same time the lower octave note oh, is also rising so it just sounds like it she- rises shepherd tones forever. uh if there's just some sort of weird because everyone's giving a standing ovation some people are like okay i'm done and they stop clapping but then because other people are still clapping they figure they need to go back to clapping just as those people are stopping and go, oh, well, those people are still clapping. And it might just be this weird sort of self-sustaining reaction because they can't right. stop and, and at like, once. What if, what if there are like 10 people planted throughout the audience who are paid to clap until their hands fall off and everybody else is like, well, these 10 people keep clapping. So I guess we have to as well. Yeah, I, I'm sure that happens. And also we need control on this data. We should find out where all of these standing ovations happened and see if Dan's theory about the acoustics are sort of correct because you could imagine that in some places where the acoustics are either bad or good depending on how you're looking at it that there could be places where standing ovations just carry more because nobody knows that nobody is clapping right now oh yeah extremely echoey rooms right yeah it could be uh, the venue operator is playing is like recording the applause or they didn't, they didn't, why, why even record it? Just play applause into the theater and everybody's like, we got to clap along with the other people who we hear clapping that is actually coming out of the speakers. What if the entire credit sequence just had applause noise playing over it? Oh no, that's, that's dystopian. Like, <laughs> please clap, for sure. Yeah. You bringing that up reminded me of the times, there's been a couple times where I've been in movie theaters, not at film festivals, just like multiplex in a suburban area where a film has gotten a standing ovation, mm-hmm. and it's the weirdest feeling. Yeah, there's nobody there to appreciate it. They're, they're applauding the projector, I guess. Yeah, and there's no projectionist anymore either, so there's nobody in the booth. Right. I've had a few experiences in theaters where there will be like audible crowd reactions which occasionally include clapping just in the sense of like, you know, a new star Wars movie when Yoda shows up and people are like, Ooh, yay clapping, but never at the end of a movie. Cause yeah, there's, there's no one there. Yeah. Everybody's for. trying to get out and beat the traffic. The most recent one that happened with, cause I haven't been in the U S for a long time, but um, I saw a preview screening of Brokeback mountain in Indianapolis and that happened. And it was, you know, that's a great movie like for sure. But it was it was a very weird feeling because I just wanted to yell at people like you know nobody's here right just you're <laughs> that's... clapping for nothing. <laughs> oh, that's that's the great that's always great to be that person who's yelling at the people who are applauding. <laughs> I, I've I've resisted the temptation a number of times at 
like MCU movies when the credits start and people are getting up to just sort of like, this is a Marvel movie, guys. You know, there's still like two more scenes to watch. Where are you going? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's amazing that they've kind of normalized sitting through the credits because I did um, film and television sound production training at university. And so like I frequently will sit through the credits of movies and just read all of them. But then in Japan, the normal thing is that you don't leave until the credits are over. Like you don't leave until like the lights fully go up. And so the thing with the MCU stuff that you're pointing out that like, you like there's, there's a post credit scene in all of these films. Like you don't know that at this point, but you're going to see an MCU film. But then also it is kind of nice that something has convinced people to sit through credits sequences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's nice to get some respect on the crew who most people will never know who they are. So at least if you're looking at the credits, you're going to get some sense of who some of these other people are who made the movie. At the very least, like this, a sense of how many people. Oh, yeah. And it's a yeah. lot of people. Yeah. There's a couple people I know in the film industry that I would recognize their names. But for the most part, it's just sort of I feel like I have a moral obligation as somebody who was sort of tangentially related to the art that like I need to do this and I should do this to respect those people. But it's, it's kind of the same as the standing ovation though. Like I'm just sitting there reading the names and nobody's there. Nobody will know if I have done that. Whenever I read uh, video game credits on the Moby Games site, as soon as I get to the end of the credits, I give a standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> but how long? Yeah, that's the, I usually get bored after like three seconds. Okay. I'm going to sit down now. Yeah. You got to have Winston there to help you sustain the standing ovation right yeah yeah i gotta get to the point where he's reading the credits with me are we ready for another topic sure uh so for this topic we're going to be reading the jabberwocky by lewis carroll and discussing uh w would anybody like to read the jabberwocky or shall i do it i will read it because i am somewhat familiar with it but i have not read it in a few years so there may be some mispronunciations but this poem has a lot of nonsense words, yeah, it's so maybe be, you're not going to It's made notice. up anyway, so... Yeah. Okay, so I will start. Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borough groves, and the mome wraiths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And, as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffing through the tolgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two. And through and through, the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head, he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Come to arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, kalu, kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borough groves, and the mome wraiths outgrabe. So a lot of poems on poetryfoundation.org have like a guide to them that you can click on. This one, I think you're just on your own, is the idea. You just got to figure it's it out. It's fascinating that it doesn't because so many of the weird 
words that were made up in this poem ended up becoming things later because people liked the poem. Right. The Jabberwocky itself, the Vorpal Blade. I think that the Vorpal Blade was meaningless at that time. But now, like you can, if you play any RPG, there's probably going to be a Vorpal Blade at some point. Right. Was burbled a word? I think so. But that's sort of the fascinating thing about this. It's like wondering, like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, As if, like, I mean, galumphing as a sort of mode of transportation (laughs) is also (laughs) something that we use now. And it's interesting reading stuff like this because the words that are weird look weird even in the context of them being words we use now. And so when you do things like read Shakespeare, who also made up a bunch of words that are now words, those are all just sort of normal words, so we don't even feel like they're strange. So Jabberwocky has always sort of maintained this, like, it continues to seem like nonsense, even as we slowly adapt all of the words into our language. Yeah, I mean, it might be proximity. We're we're definitely closer to Lewis Carroll than we were than we were to Shakespeare. Yeah, and the thing that I I like about this poem a lot is that it, it I feel like it really gets at something very fundamental about language and sound, which is that certain sounds have a certain feeling, and then you can tell a very simple story, but then put in all of these like nonsense things on a feeling level, you will feel as though you have understood something quite clearly. I think you raise a really good point about how it's still, even with all the words that don't mean anything particular, are sort of phrased in a way and the the rhythm of it still gives you a sense of what it means. Yeah, that's a, not the way that you usually see language used. And especially, you know, I think Lewis Carroll was sort of about the same time as like, you know, E.B. White and they're they're putting down, you know, the modern rules of grammar and all this. And so there's a lot of like prescriptivism of like, oh, you have to write like this and these things mean these things and any other way is just sort of not tenable. And then you read something like Jabberwocky and you, you really start to get the sense that like, oh, wait, maybe language is a lot more complicated than we thought. Yeah, it, it definitely gives that sense that there's something interesting and sort of obscure going on, if that makes sense. Like, you still can get the feeling from it. Like, you know, it's just like, Twas Brillig and the Slithy Toves, the Gyre and Gimble and the Wabe. Like, I still get a feeling that this is sort of like a kind of cheerful, peaceful time. Like, Mimsy were the word. It's like, Mimsy is a word, just maybe because it rhymes with whimsy. Like, it sounds like it's sort of a, everything is going great, and then, oh no, the scary monster but it's done without saying any of those words and it's done in a way that isn't the usual way you would do that. Yeah. Is this a poem written entirely in an American version of Cockney rhyming slang? That would actually be really impressive to do. I think to make a poem entirely in that kind of rhyme scheme that then rhymed and also told a reasonable story that I would, I would love to see that if someone could do it. Yeah, but it also, it makes me imagine, like, an expanded version of Jabberwocky that's like, this poem exists on two levels. Like, there's this thing, and yeah, you think it's about this person fighting a monster with a Vorpal Blade, but then it turns out when you decode all of the rhyming slang that it's actually about some guy doing his taxes. I mean, that would be the way you'd want to do it. If you were, if you were going to do anything like that, I'd want it to decode Yeah, it's, it's the silly. only way to do it, yeah. I would like to point out that 
Lewis Carroll was a bit of a creepy dude, and there's definitely a lot of sort of accusations about specific things he may have done, which may or may not be true, but definitely a creepy dude, and the family of Alice Little did not like him very much, and for good reason from the documented incidents that we do know about. So, like, I would like to say that, like, me suggesting this poem for the poetry reading here is not endorsing Lewis Carroll because uh, he was a creepy guy. Always, always fair to to put some disclaimers on things like that. Yeah. Do you know about that stuff, by the way? Is that um, not like especially like I, I've I'm not much of a Lewis Carroll person in general. Like I I knew about Jabberwocky entirely sort of through cultural osmosis. Like I've never read it. I've never had any. I don't even know if I've had any of carol's books so have you read the alice books i haven't like i've i've seen the animated movie and probably one or two other ones over the years but never read the original uh i def i knew about vorpal swords before i knew about the poem just from D D. yeah there's a very choice adaptation that i will recommend which is sometime in the late 1980s maybe like 88 there's a tv adaptation musical of alice in wonderland and usually when they do alice in wonderland they only do the first book they don't do the second book. And this is a musical and it has a lot of people you will recognize. It has Ringo Starr. It has like Little Richard. It has John Stamos. It has uh, Pat Morita. It has a lot of different people <laughs> singing various different songs. And it's also like kind of very strange in the way it maintains the fact that Alice in Wonderland is supposed to be kind of uncomfortable in a way. So it's a very kind of faithful adaptation, even though it's a musical. And so if you can find like the 1980s version of Alice in Wonderland from American TV, um, it's pretty amazing. And then they also, the the reason nobody does the second book is because the second book is a chess game that is being played out through Wonderland. And so Alice has to move to different spots at different points and talk to different people. And it gets sort of uh, annoying. And so it it tends not to be adapted. But this miniseries like did the whole thing. I'll definitely have to have a look at that. That sounds quite interesting. Yeah, and the stuff on Lewis Carroll was just that there were some incidents with... Everybody knows about Alice, but Alice had an older sister. And then there were some incidents between him and Lewis Carroll. And I think maybe the family like moved their estate to like get away from him at some point. It was uh, It's not the story that's in the back of every Alice book. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. All right. Uh, Sis, your topic is Cursed Connectors and Adapters. Yeah, so I really hope that either of you has some stories about cursed connectors and adapters because I don't want to just repeat the thread from Foon or Phone on Twitter from a long time ago. <laughs> well, we'll see. But uh, his example on Twitter was that for a long time, it was difficult to sort of make your own solid connector for a thing. You want to attach one piece of metal to another piece of metal, and how do you do that? And if you try to invent your own thing, it's going to be hard to do that. And then you got to get it manufactured. And so an adult novelty company decided that they were going to start using audio XLR connectors for their toys. And you're like, what? But that's an audio interface. And it's like, yeah, they didn't use the metal pins to transfer audio. It's just like that. Like it used to be that data and sound connectors were so solid, you could just use them as physical connectors for other things. And so they used XLR to connect 
toys to different machines. And then after a while, they also started using quick connect pneumatic like air connectors. So it's like a thing that you would have like if you've been in like wood shop class, like that would be like on a nail gun or something. Like they discovered like those are pretty solid too. And then so you had different companies using different kinds of off-the-shelf connectors to do things they were never designed for, which gets you to the most cursed adapter in the thread that I've ever seen, which is quick connect pneumatic air to balanced stereo XLR. (laughs) That's beautiful. I'm really into that. Yeah, it raised a thing that's like, well, what is a microphone but an adapter between like air pressure and electrical signal yeah exactly yep your your brain falls off a cliff yeah <laughs> but you think of it as like a, spe- a speaker is you know it's it's pushing air but you think of it as 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 making sound specifically but you could totally think of it as like i bet you could use a like a, a subwoofer to just blow a puff of air at you oh for sure but yeah the thing about a sub though it's gonna it's gonna push air in like all directions because of the way that it's designed mm-hmm. you definitely don't think about things that you use in that way. Like I think that you brought this up on the topic Lords discord a while ago, but just discovering at some point that, Oh, you can use a microphone as a speaker if you need to. And you can use a speaker as a microphone if you need to, by just plugging it in differently, basically and reading it differently. Right. um, Because of the way that they're built. I mean, it's not even the same thing in reverse. It's literally the same thing, just tuned differently. Yeah. And like a microphone is going to make a bad speaker. And a speaker is going to make a bad microphone, but it works and yeah. it works. Yeah. Because it's the, the same thing. And so right. the thing about the cursed connectors and adapters is that when you really get down to it, you're sort of seeing the fabric of reality in some way, <laughs> which is that the things that you thought were so different because they've been sort of compartmentalized and you think of them a certain way are not all that different. And it just takes like a very cursed connector or adapter to make them work yeah so my connector story that comes to mind i have a a pixel 3a android phone after a while it stopped charging so i took it in to uh, get it repaired and the guy at the repair shop was like yeah sorry nobody really repairs pixels the parts are too expensive and then he referred to me like to, to some repair shop like 75 miles away that might do it and then he was like, well, hang on a second. And then he took it in the back and just blew a fuck ton of air out of the charge port. And then it worked again. Yeah. So is that USB-C? It's, it's, yes, it's USB-C. Yeah. So USB-C is, there's a lot of good things about USB-C, but one of the bad things is that it is extremely brittle when it comes to any kind of dust in the port. And I've had issues with my switch a lot with charging like that. Mm-hmm but not with the phone. And so that, that tracks to me that just blowing a huge amount of air into the connector would, uh, would fix it. Right. So what I've done now, I, I decided to try this. I'm still not sure it's a good idea is I got um, one of those adapters that, so it, it's basically a sticker you attach to the back of your phone that has like induction coils on it. And then you plug the bottom of the sticker into the USB-C port at port and you can use wireless charging it's basically an adapter to convert your USB-C charging phone to a wireless charging phone, but the range is really short and I've got a thick case. And on top of my thick case, I have uh, what's called a love handle, which is like a, an adhesive strap that you can stick your, your fingers underneath. So it's easier to hold the phone when you, you don't have to have a, like a, 
a full like finger thumb grip on it. You can just kind of stick your fingers under the strap and then you're holding it. Mm-hmm. And so like if I put this thing on the charging pad, the charge coils are so far away from the actual source of power that it doesn't work. So every time I charge my phone, I have to take my case off. And so it's basically worse in just about every way than just plugging it in, except that with this adapter plugged into my USB-C charging port, the port will never get filled with dust. (laughs) I just enjoy the sort of everything old is new again thing where we're back to blowing into stuff to make it work. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, I, I even tried it. I tried like the, the things that I historically did to get dust out of something, which is like shoving a stick in there and blowing. But he apparently had like an industrial strength blower. Yeah. The thing about the old technology was like, you can like count the pins on a Famicom cartridge or an NES cartridge. Right. You can't count the pins on the USB-C. And so, yeah, unfortunately, like, you probably do need, like, an industrial strength amount of wind to knock a piece of dust out from it because of the way it's designed. Right. One thing I heard about the tradition of blowing in your game cartridge to get it to work is that they had this tradition, in, like, and, it, and it's, it's disavowed by Nintendo. Like, Nintendo doesn't want you to do this. But... Both American children and Japanese children invented this as a as a solution to your cartridge not working. But in America, you sweep your air across the whole cartridge. You like blow from left to right or what have you. And in Japan, you just blow once in the middle. Huh. That's what I heard. Hmm. That makes it sound more like it's just entirely superstition. I I think it probably is, yeah. That was just never actually a thing. I don't know if this is apocryphal, and this could be part of the reason Nintendo disavowed it, but the thing that I heard about that technique is that basically what happens on, like, NES cartridges is that you'll get damage to the pins, and then the inside of the NES is not attaching to those pins at a different spot every time evenly. It's sort of wearing down the the pieces that, and if you look at like really old NES cartridges that's been used a lot, you'll see like holes in the pins from where the NES would attach to the cartridge. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I heard was basically like, the reason this works is because you're putting a layer of condensation that allows the cartridge to (laughs) read. I was just going to suggest that that might've been why. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But then because it's basically water, you're contributing to how fast the kit, the pins will then degrade. So it, it works in the moment, and it works for while you're playing, but then long-term, you're going to rust the pins more, and the problem is going to get worse, maybe. So what you're saying is the it would be more effective to like do a wet exhale. I, okay. Do you have a manual for how to do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh Wow, like I, I can I can I can do this like intuitively, but I can't describe how you what's the difference? Uh, it's I think it's the the amount of force and the concentration of the force. Like to blow, you purse your lips, so higher pressure yeah. comes out in the stream. We're going for more of a like a dip the Yeah, like, on the mic. like the air's coming right from your lungs. Yeah, like with your your mouth wide open and so like low pressure, high radius of air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I, bet, I wonder if linguists have a name for this. 
like a, I called it a wet exhale because that was intuitive to me, but interesting. I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that like this wouldn't be something everybody knows how to do. Yeah, I, I just worry that anything coming from your mouth will have condensation in it, and so I'm just sort of being all or nothing on it. But there probably, yeah, is a way to get a drier version of the blowing into the cartridge. Right. Oh, I thought the idea was to deliberately get more moisture in the yeah, way you're yeah. describing it. <laughs> oh, like, oh, right. So rather oh, than yeah, rather sorry, than sorry, blow yeah. and hope you get enough moisture in there to just give it a Oh, sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I misunderstood. Dip it in a glass of water. Yeah, basically. I do, yes, and I do know ways to make your breath wetter. I don't know ways to make your breath drier, but yeah. And this is where maybe, you know, if people had just had the balanced stereo to pneumatic air quick connector, maybe history would have been different. <laughs> is exhaling on the cartridge so that the pins can seat better itself a cursed connector yeah if you can adapt your breath to uh the pneumatic connector that would be ideal <laughs> you, just, you, you just stick one end of the hose in your mouth <laughs> right <laughs> well at that point you're just playing a bagpipe you know <laughs> right yep bagpipe to stereo xlr <laughs> electric bagpipe yeah, you actually um, probably could rig something up like that because the 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 three reeded drones at the back of the bagpipe, like air is coming out of the three of them at different rates, which is why they make different pitches. So you mm -hmm. actually probably could hook something up to the end of each of those and get like variable output depending on what notes you're playing to like force <laughs> the air out different ones in different amounts. Right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that the that Japanese children also had that because the story that you hear about the American NES is that its connector for the cartridges is particularly cursed because it's horizontal in the in the system instead of vertical. And so it, it makes me feel better to know that it wasn't just American children suffering. Does the Famicom have the lockout chip? I don't know, but my initial reaction to that would be probably not. But also, the Famicom is a weird thing because you could get software on floppy disk. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. I would suspect not, but it could be maybe, but I don't know how important that would be considering you can just put in a floppy. Right. Yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Uh, Dan, your topic is vacationing alone is extremely efficient. Right. Uh, so in uh, 2013, I had sort of my first real career job that had a reasonable income and, you know, vacation time scheduled and so decided I would just sort of do this fairly ridiculous trip. Uh, I had gone to Gen Con that year, and then from Gen Con flew to Europe and did an entire trip of uh, London, Gothenburg, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Antwerp, back to London in about two weeks. So it was around two nights per country, uh, which I basically just had all my stuff in a big backpack and just sort of went. And... Honestly, I don't know that I could ever go on a vacation in a group again after doing that <laughs> because just every single thing you did was the thing you wanted to be doing at the time. You didn't have to accommodate the rest of your group. You didn't have to start or stop when other people did. And like the whole process was like I'd arrive in a country at like 10 in the morning, check into the hotel, book my transportation and hotel in the next country because I hadn't done it all in advance. I was doing it as I went. Another thing that's great about going alone. I was like, spend a day walking around, getting a feel for the place, planning out what you want to do. And then the second day, 
was just a full day of tourist stuff, but it was exactly the tourist stuff I wanted to do in the order I wanted to do it. If I went to a place and I was like, oh, this isn't so great, you just leave and just, it was great. It was fantastic. And I mean, I know not everyone can feel safe traveling around a foreign country alone. I have some privileges there for sure, but I definitely don't feel like I missed out on anything. I don't feel like I should have stayed longer anywhere, like that I really needed to. Like I, I hit all the major stuff I wanted to, and I just, I honestly can't recommend it enough for people if you think you can hack it to just be completely on your own in, in some faraway place. Uh, it was probably one of the better experiences of my life. <laughs> right. I, this sounds actually very similar to making a game by yourself where you just make exactly the game you want to make and you don't need to like come to a consensus as a team on how to, if you like, if you feel like you have a good idea, you don't have to sell anybody on it. And if you feel like what you're doing is a bad thing, you just change it right, right then and there without consulting anybody. It's kind of amazing. And the, the, the downside is that like your vacation might just not have good enough art in it because you're, it was just programmer art. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I only knew about the the tourist attractions that I knew about, you know. Right. If if someone else in the group cared more about certain types of thing, they might have found some great place to go that I missed. But you didn't know about that, so you didn't miss it. So Yeah, you also don't have any of the regrets of missing the things yeah. that you didn't know about. Right, yeah. But but you're never going to make a, a tr- the kind of AAA vacation that the like a 4000 person team at Ubisoft is going to go on. You have to you have to go to Syria and find all the waypoints. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for me the like I I really understand the the efficiency and how it could be more fun to travel alone, but the problem that I have when I travel is that I just I don't know what to do. And I'm going to flag my autism again here just because maybe this is more common for people who have my variant of autism, but like it's like, oh, you can eat, you could go see something, but I don't feel like that's really going to be that good. And so for me, like, I really need to have another person that I'm traveling with who wants to do stuff. Because when I go do all that stuff, I have a good time. But when I have to plan it all myself and go do it myself, what I end up doing is basically sitting in my hotel room, listening to podcasts, and then taking a walk while listening to a podcast and then eating at a pretty good restaurant that's close to my hotel while listening to a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm kind of right there with you, except I would just not go on the vacation in the first place. Oh, and that's, yeah. When I, yeah, that's exactly what happened when I was single and an adult in my twenties was I just didn't go on vacations. Yeah. Like I just don't feel an urge to do a, a lot of the things that like I end up enjoying doing that I am only driven to do because I'm doing them with other people. Like I do a lot of outdoorsy things that I wouldn't normally do because I have a three-year-old that I'm trying to turn into a, a a well-rounded human adult. And I mean, I, I see where that comes from. I mean, I, I also, for the record, I'm autistic, uh, I guess probably in some different ways from the ways that you are. But uh, for me in that sense, I mean, I experienced a lot of that too, where in general, I just, don't go do things unless someone pushes me to do them. And I mean, I didn't plan it in advance. That was, I think, part of the important way that it worked was I had bought my flight and my accommodations into London and then back from London at the end. 
and every other thing I did, I did as I went. I didn't have any of my travel. I didn't have any of my hotels booked up front, uh, which worked out great because I ended up staying an extra day in Gothenburg that I wouldn't have been able to if I'd sort of locked it all down. And just the whole idea was I'm on my own. So yeah, if if I want to spend my day walking around the city, taking in the city, I just can, you know? And like, I never felt any pressure to need to do a bunch of touristy things. And so it wasn't a function of just like, I'd feel bad because I don't want to go do things. But it's just, you walk around, and this is why the, the sort of traveling alone is the is the, the pitch here, is you if you're going for your walk and listening to your podcast, and you pass a thing, and you go, oh, that looks neat, you can just walk in and do it, you know? And that's that's the benefit, is that you can as easily not do things if you don't want to, but the point is that you're doing the things you want to do. Yeah, and the, the thing that I think occurs to me with your description of your travel that's that seems really important that never occurred to me when I was looking at traveling was that you spent a short amount of time in each place. And so the travel was kind of the point. Whereas for a lot of things, when traveling people will be like, Oh, I'm going to go and spend a week here or two weeks here. And I don't like the part where I like I'm on a plane or in a bus or whatever, but if you're spending a very short amount of time in each place, then probably, yeah, I, I probably would have been able to, enjoy that quite a lot um but it just never occurred to me while i was uh in my 20s or or even now just to 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 do it that way yeah and and a lot of people reacted to the structure of my trip like i was nuts like i'm literally just spending two nights per country like that just that just doesn't compute for a lot of people and it's like yeah but i don't need more than that i'm gonna look at the castle and i'm gonna walk around and i'm gonna go on a tour or two and i'm gonna eat some local food Eh, that's good I've got a sense of the place. Like, if anything, it was more of a, like, survey vacation to, like, see which of those places I might like to go back to for a more full vacation, if that makes sense. So it's the idea of, I'm just going to hop around, walk around the place, see what it's like, see what the people are like, see what the food is like, and yeah, it's good. I can move on. And that was was definitely the point of it, was to just hit as many places as I could. And yeah, you, you have a small enough amount of time that it's easier to sort of have that trip, the urgency lever in your brain that lets you do stuff of like, well, I've got one day, so I'm going to go out and do stuff. And then you don't have to worry about, well, how am I going to fill two weeks? If only there were a way to like, listen to local podcasts. (laughs) Like I I want to listen. (laughs) If I go to a, if I go to a city, I want to like walk into a bookstore and like go to the zine section and find like, yeah, here's some podcasts recorded by, local uh local podcast artists and walk around the city while listening to them yeah it's not as easy to pick up a podcast as like walk in and like buy a newspaper yeah that would be nice like that that should be something like cities do but it, it feels like with the move to digital like they're barely even recommending you know print things anymore so so unfortunately we don't live in that world but i would love to live in in that world where you got to a place and you got off the plane and they're like oh here are the five podcasts yeah. <laughs> you check into your hotel and the concierge is like, would you like some recommendations for dinner or also podcasts? Yes. <laughs> it, it turns out they're just going to recommend Radio Lab to you and you're like, oh, fine. I guess that's what people like. You go into your hotel room and instead of mints, there's just like a USB drive that has some recorded episodes on it. Yeah. Yeah, you've got 18 This American Life, 14 Radio Labs, and then um, you got like two episodes of Two Dope Queens and you're like, you're welcome. <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess I could check out this two dope queens one. Haven't heard of that. All right, let's let's do this last topic then. Uh, my topic is seeking Mr. Eden's name. Are you two familiar with uh, Fail Better and Fallen London? Yes, I have played. I have not played Fallen London, but I played. What was the boat one? The uh, oh, Sunless yeah, Sea. I played, yeah, I played a bunch of Sunless Sea. Yeah. I, I played a bunch of Fallen London sort of at the time it was de rigueur, uh, and I have Sunless Sea and Sunless Sky. I've played them both a little bit, see more, but not a ton. Right, right. So for the listeners, um, Fallen London is a game that is played out in text on a website. So it's sort of like a text-based MMO, but not in the sense of a mud. So in this segment, I was trying to explain Fallen London from a mechanical standpoint uh, and didn't really know how to approach it. The lore really is a lot more of the initial selling point, so it was probably a mistake. But I do want to try to nail it down a little bit here because Fallen London is... I don't know of any other text-driven games in this vein. Like, usually you get branching story paths like Twine... Or you get physically modeled worlds that you interact with using prose commands like text adventures. Fallen London is really something entirely new where the basic unit of storytelling, it's called the story lit. And it's just a scenario, you make a choice, and then there's an outcome. And the outcome, the outcome both gives you prose and also feeds into an economy of qualities, which is what the game calls it. And the qualities are, some of them are things like your, your four main stats, which are persuasive, dangerous, shadowy, and watchful. And then there are the commensurate menaces qualities. And the menaces are scandal, wounds, suspicion, and nightmares. Then there's items you can have, like you can have equipment. And there's, and there's items like that are effectively currency, and there are hundreds of kinds of currency that all kind of feed into each other. But then there are also qualities like someone is coming, which is a stat that grows over time, or approaching the gates of the garden, or touched by finger work. Or if you're in the middle of a fight with someone, there's a stat called running battle, which grows over time, and something interesting happens when it reaches a certain value. And the options that you pick on the storylets can have, uh, can demand that these qualities be of certain levels, and they can modify the qualities. And so rather than like a fixed set of branches that the story can take, it's really more like you're interacting with this pool of scenarios that you can that you can choose to encounter and the economy of qualities that the that they interact with. Anyway, I hope that was interesting. Uh, now back to me being confused. Man, how can I maybe maybe someone else it's, needs to describe it's a, this. It's an, it's an interactive story. It is kind of an interactive story, but it's also just kind of like a cloud of things that happen. Yeah, like, there's, there's, there's just objects around that you can interact with in certain ways. It's like interactive microfiction. Yeah, let's start with the setting, which is, it's Victorian London, except the, the tagline is that London has been stolen by bats. And so London has been moved deep underground to like a cavern the size of Europe where permanent death doesn't exist dreams are real and like you're, you're dealing with like urchins and devils and rubbery men on a regular basis. And the way you actually do this is by like, you get a deck of cards that, that you then deal into a hand and then you can pick like each of these cards in the, you have in your hand is like, here's an action that you can, or a situation you can deal with. 
uh, you're given this situation that's rendered in kind of abstract terms. Like you never see anybody's name in this in this game. You, they're all given titles, like like uh, the silent cartographer, or <laughs> that's I think that's from Halo, actually. Uh, <laughs> that would fit, no. names of that structure anyway. <laughs> yes, yes, or the the last constable. It's describing like at the scale of like an afternoon, like you're you're clicking on this action and you're it's it, it'll d- then describe like the things that you do that afternoon and the outcomes of it and i'm making this sound really boring <laughs> uh, well i mean the the, well, the 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 thing to know about is is that it is extremely evocative writing like yes it's not that is, just that's like a, that's a very important you walk down the street and you see this guy that introduces himself as the last constable it's like there's a a sense that like this isn't just like what he calls himself like the last constable is like an important thing. Like this guy is the sort of only bastion of, of order in the city now or something like all of the characters and all of the situations feel like the, the flavor in the writing is just incredible. And it's hard right. yeah. to describe everybody, without just everybody you meet it. is going to tell you their most unique thing about them. Right, right, right. This game gets really grindy. You, you, you can play for a few weeks and, and feel like and you're seeing unique stuff fairly often. But after that, you get like, to the point where like you're doing the same actions a lot in order to build up some kind of object that you have a currency that you have or a stat that you need in order to make progress in some other story and so like the story can be the way it does storytelling is it it you're it's telling you like a half a dozen stories at once and you're seeing like a new paragraph every week in each one and you kind of have to keep them all in your head which is one of the downsides i think of of this kind of storytelling structure yeah, and the other the other thing about that too is just for for the listeners that it's one of those games where you have you know like ten turns and as you spend them the turns come back like one every fifteen minutes type of thing. Right. It's 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 that very much free to play in that sense, but it's not like the it's not the the abusive kind of free to play. You can subscribe on a monthly basis, but it what that basically gives you is access to new content. Yeah, they did have they have because your your turns were in like a candle that burned down as you took turns, and right. you could pay money to have a second candle, but it didn't make your ten unit candle a twenty unit candle. You just had two simultaneous ten unit candles, so like so the, so you the, you couldn't just what, save up to spend a whole bunch of activity at once, which is kind of what you want in a game like that. Right. What's un What's unintuitive about having two candles is that you don't get turns any faster. They still come every 10 minutes, but they will store up to 40 instead of up to 20. And so like, you don't have to wake up in the middle of the night to spend all your turns. They don't go to waste. And it is exactly the kind of game because the writing is so interesting that if they had just said, or you can just give us 20 bucks and there's no more turn limiting and you can just play this as a cool story game and click away as many times as you want to get through the story, I would have handed them over that money real fast. I, I certainly would too. Uh, but I wonder, I, I think they actually would, I think they are actually making more money this way, which is a bummer that you can't just like pay for the game and own it. But so the thing I wanted to talk about seeking Mr. Eaton's name, uh, it is an extremely like high level quest line that you can go on in this game where you've built up your character, you've built up all your stats to crazy values and you've 
gotten all these accomplishments, like you've achieved your your am, your chosen ambition, and you've married your spouse, and you've got a majestic pleasure yacht that you sail the ocean in, the Untersee, and you've increased your notability to some super high level. And seeking Mr. Eaton's name is a quest that you can go on that it's been kind of hinted at throughout the entire game. Whenever uh, you have a dream about going north, is 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 uh, it's pointing at this, and you will occasionally come up with these opportunity cards that have black borders, which is very striking. Like no no cards have black borders in this game unless they're involved with this storyline, and everything you do to do with this is uh, very bad for your character. Like at the at the very minimum, it will like increase your nightmares stat to some by some huge amount and you start getting this new quality called unaccountably peckish which as it goes up you'll find yourself doing things like you're going to break into a dentist's office to steal a jar of teeth so you can eat them like popcorn yeah i was wondering if that was going to be cannibalism <laughs> i i you know i don't think you do cannibalism in this quest i i could be wrong though i haven't like i'm not super familiar with every aspect of it depends on how you feel about human teeth you know I mean, at this point, it just sounds like it's an intrusive thought simulator, and <laughs> uh, it, it it gets there, yeah. And to to proceed in the seeking Mister Eaton storyline, you have to as gradually as it as you built up your character, you build your character back down. Like you will betray your spouse and scuttle your ship, and there's a step that you have to take um, called blacken your mind, blacken your mind like paper, which halves your watchful stat. And then you have to build it back up and do it again. Build it back to endgame levels and do it again. It's it's very arduous and very, like, it feels very uh, nihilistic to be doing this to yourself. And you get a new stat that's kind of in parallel to notability called Obscurity, where as you build this stat up, like, you become, like, I, I'm reading into the lore here. I don't know if this is actually how it plays out, but I'm reading that, like, as as you build this stat up, like, you become kind of visible to less and less of re- of the rest of reality. And you, at the end, you your character becomes unplayable as after as you take the final step. Um, and throughout this whole process, there is the game uses this bold font to indicate that this is the game developers talking directly to you, the player, saying this is a bad idea. You shouldn't be going on this quest. This this will not end well for you. Uh, turn back now. And right on the final step, that same bold font will ask you, like, okay, if you're going to go through this door. Just do us a favor and don't tell anybody what's beyond it. Because that's the whole point, is the idea that knowing that solving this mystery will mean destroying yourself and doing it anyway. That's the, that's the draw of, of seeking Mr. Eden's name. And as far as I can tell, that, that information, like what happens at the end of the quest, is not on, online anywhere. Wow, that's that's amazing that it's not. So if, if everything leading up to that is visible, then at least a lot of people have gotten right up to that final point. Uh, well, the the rest of the game doesn't have that same, like, please don't disclose this information. But but the, the wikis that I've been looking at, the wiki that I've been uh, looking at from my most recent playthrough does do a lot of, like, text alighting, like... It will tell you the gist of what happens when you take an action, but it, and it'll tell you like the stat changes that happen, but it won't give you the pros, which is, as you were saying, the good part of the game. Um, and so you still have to play the game to get the text that you're trying to read. 
definitely like having it described like this and then finding out that there don't actually appear to be any spoilers anywhere you can find them certainly makes it a lot more appealing to want to go do it <laughs> right like, that's, I, that's I would what really I'm, like yeah. to know but yeah me too I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to do this, so you can't ask me. I've played this game, this is my third time playing it, every single time I've started over because, like, I knew that if I loaded up, like, in the middle of the endgame content, I'd be like, what, what am I even doing? What's this character doing? Um, and the, the early game is the fun part anyway, because you're not in the super grindfest part of the game yet. Um, and even, like, I guess I'm not, I'm not in the endgame, I'm probably, like, in mid-endgame mid, mid territory. Um, it's already super grindy for me and I'm already feeling myself kind of drifting away from it. I get the impression that seeking Mr. Eaton's name is like the grindiest thing in the game as well as the most soul deadening. So like they really want you to earn it. Yeah. Maybe that's what's beyond the door. Your, your soul is dead. Right. Maybe what's beyond the door is just the character creation screen. <laughs> Oh yeah, one of the thing one of the things you can do in this game is you can sell your soul to devils. And if you're seeking Mr. Eden's name, you have to get it back from the devils so that you can destroy it yourself. Uh the thing that you mentioned about sort of the pros not being available and the pros being the point and the beginning of the b game being the part that you like is um really making me glad that I chose to interact with this world through Sunless Sea and not play <laughs> Fallen London because Sunless Sea does get a bit grindy if you're trying to do sort of later stuff. But for the most part, if you're sort of dipping your toe in, you know, you, you die a lot because it's kind of a roguelike. And so mm -hmm. you, you do see a lot of like repeated content at the beginning, but there's so many different directions that you can go in the beginning that it's just fun to like start a run and then be like, oh, I'm going to go off over here and and then trigger this story. Uh, I think Dan was mentioning like, oh, if I could just give them the money and just have infinite energy and just interact with the pros, that would be good. But I really wonder if maybe there's some kind of self-consciousness there about like the game design aspects of this, where they worry that the gameplay in Fallen London, maybe they, maybe they consider the gameplay to be the daily nature of it. Yeah, I do think that like... In Sunless Sea, the story is paced out by the sailing game. Right, yeah. Um, where you're actually physically moving around the world. I do think they would need some kind of pacing mechanism. Yeah, well, it definitely would be the case that there'd be a concern. Like, when you look at sort of modern MMOs, how little people engage with the story at all. Like, a lot of people who play World of Warcraft can barely tell you anything about the actual plot line of a given expansion because they don't read any of the quest descriptions. They just hammer on the button till it tells them where to go. And so there would definitely be a concern with a game like Fallen London if you had infinite energy that you'd just stop paying attention. Yeah, because you would definitely get into the point where if you're like, well, I need to grind up, you know, a hundred of this currency, so I'm just going to go click, 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 click until it's done that you just stop engaging with the story when the actual story is the whole point. Like I was going to sort of say before this sub topic came up that it's sort of the opposite of a modern MMO where there's the gameplay and then there's some story that mostly gets skipped. Whereas with a game like this, it's story with gameplay that you almost kind of want to skip. Like I'd rather just read it all as like a novel. Yeah. But I think that the self-consciousness for them is probably that you are that type of player 
and a lot of people are probably that type of player. But then also there are some people who lack executive function in a way that allows them to have that kind of self-control. And so they they see it as sort of best, like you said, to sort of meet it out on a daily basis so that like people have time, maybe feel, not that they're forced to, but that they're not wasting anything by spending time with just the story. When I played um, Kingdom of Loathing, because I'd, I'd played World of Warcraft, and World of Warcraft is one of those games you can play, like, you can play an 80-hour week of World of Warcraft if you want, and the game won't stop you. But when I played Kingdom of Loathing, I appreciated that there were the there was a turn limit, saying, like, I, just, you just can't s- spend that long playing this game every day. Until then, you like, can. Yeah, and then then they, but it turns out they have these high level items that uh, really increase your your turn limit. Yeah, like that was a game that you got. What is it? Basic forty turns, and then you could store up to I think two hundred. Oh, I forgot about that. You'd get like forty a day, and you could build up to two hundred. Yeah, it was forty yeah. a day. But if there was a daily reset, and you were at two hundred or higher, it would put you to two hundred and keep you there. But right. then once you get at all advanced in the game you have access to all of the the food and booze at a level where if i sat down with 200 turns at the start of a day i'd probably have 400 turns to play and if you're trying to be efficient you do a lot of switching stuff around and moving around between places so you don't do a lot of just i'm going to press this button 50 times so like it it is also a game that can end up taking a ton of your time once you get into it but <laughs> right but yeah, it's definitely with a game like Fallen London, they really want you to think of each turn as precious enough so you'll sit down and read all the text. Because if you could do it a hundred times, you'd stop paying attention. But if you only have this certain number of turns, each one feels precious. So you don't yeah. want to like waste anything. Well, except that that, that stops happening. Like, unfortunately, like but at the time I'm in the game, like I, I definitely will do you know 30 turns in a row of grinding the same action and i i'm definitely not reading the text at that point yeah what if seeking mr eaton's name what if the the, beyond the door you just get infinite daily energy and then nobody's spoiled (laughs) it because they're too deep in the fallen london hole right yeah that, that would that would explain it that would explain why people think the character's unplayable because now you're off playing this other character that has infinite energy instead and that's all the time we have for topic lords Dan, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? So my book review site can be found at strangecurrencies.org. And if you are so inclined to try to find me on Twitter, I can also be found there at strangecurrencies. Uh, and, and sis, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? So the best way to find me is on Twitter. I am cishetkfaber. And uh, that's spelled like, you know, cisgender, heterosexual, and then kfaber, like uh, you're someone that likes wrestling. Um, and then I also I hang out a lot in the Topic Lords Discord, and I think more people should come in there because it's a great place to discuss topics with people who might end up becoming your friends, and you might talk to them more, and it's good. It's, it's pretty cool. I'm into it. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a great time. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. 
You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!